Perform this on demand. The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. The Glenn Beck Program. It's John Adams who said, it's not the government's job to keep the people in line. It's the people's job to keep the government in line. Praise Donald Trump when he does something right. Criticize him when he does something wrong. To act otherwise is to feed a cult of personality mentality. And that's not making America great again. But you know what? The left, you've got a cult of personality as well. Yours is just the media. But to sit here and act like Donald Trump hasn't done anything good or worthwhile, that's crazy talk. The Glenn Beck Program. Reaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This. This is the place, the place you'll find honest talk, straight talk, frank talk. Discussion from an American Muslim patriot who believes that it is our role as American Muslims to be responsible, to lead reform, to call out the radicals, to begin the process, the long journey of reform. Perhaps we are the radicals, the reformers, and the normal ones are the ones who need to wake up from the medieval 15th century, 12th century that they're living in. Who knows? Time will tell. Legacy will be written for us. And I hope this is the place that you come to to get a different take on what's happening, to hear about those stories that might just be seen along the bottom of the ticker on the news screen and might be ignored. As always, there's a lot to talk about this week from Turkey with sanctions beginning in order to save a pastor, to Iran with the real with the real falling in a in a death spiral. I want to follow up on the Faisal Hussein case, the supposedly psychotic, now known ISIS advocate, terrorist that we discussed last week in Toronto. There's a cricket player now running that will soon be running the Pakistani government, the soon-to-be prime minister, with a lot to learn there about some of the pathologies in the Islamic communities, states, cities, and region. There's a Somali running for and a Somali American running for Congress in Minnesota to take Keith Ellison's seat. It'll make your hair stand to know the bizarre twists and corruption in her campaign as next week will be the primary. So much to talk about. Let's start though and get you a little updated on what the heck is going on with this story in Toronto. A radical Islamist by the name of Faisal Hussain committed an act of terror, killed two people, injured 13, some of whom will be paralyzed, and still there is a virtual media blackout about the jihadi nature of his illness. And it's not an illness. It's an ideology. And this is what happens every time they delay confirmation that it is a Muslim, that it is an Islamist, that it is an ideologically motivated act of terror, not just a crime, ideological motivated act of terror. And then what happens is then as details come out later, it just doesn't matter because it's already been set up as a psychiatric case. Never mind the now completely irrelevant Prime Minister Trudeau, 
but there are some facts coming out that what's bizarre is he had his nonviolent jihadi lawyer who provided his apropos takia in which he claims the family knew nothing about it and uh, all of a sudden you have this sophisticated statement as my friend Tariq Fatah talked to me about on radio earlier this week and explained, you know, it's amazing how a family where one of the members has Alzheimer's, the other is is in a coma and et cetera, all of a sudden puts out a statement that says we have no idea how this happened. Uh, he's been trying to get treatment for depression, etc. Well, since last week, you and I spoke about this case, since last week, Police have found 33 guns, 42 kilograms of a deadly drug known as kerfentanil, a deadly drug so potent that one grain can bring down an elephant. One grain. And that's what it was originally designed to do in the 70s. Now, this drug was found in masses equivalent of unbelievable amounts in the association of the shooter's brother, Fahed. And he remains in a coma, they said from a drug overdose, but who knows what he was trying to do. And as some have reported on the internet. Now, I would tell you that maybe these stories are false, maybe they are exaggerated. I don't know. But why isn't anybody reporting on this? I don't, I, I don't understand. It is the pathology. It is... Not the terrorist that had a mental illness. Yes, he might have been weakened. He might have had uh, some psychiatric issues. It is the media, the liberal media, that has a mental illness. We need to know the facts. If we are going to treat a disease, we have to reinvestigate every time the path, not only to radicalization, but the ideologies of the mosques that radicalize him, the ideologies of families and others that create the fertile soil that jihadize radicalize into the Salafi jihadist mentality of these individuals. So, was he building weapons of mass destruction? What were these brothers doing? Who knows? Leave it to the conspiracy theorists on the internet. And I say conspiracy theorists, some of them might be true. Nobody's investigating this except them. Put the pieces together. I'm sorry, this doesn't seem like a conspiracy theory. The kid's brother was dealing with a drug that in the amounts found that have never been found before. That could, if aerosolized or in some way, if some way used, would create a danger to the population that is unheard of. Anyway, look it up. We're becoming more pathologically heaped in political correctness. We may never know. Next, let's talk briefly, briefly, about Imran Khan. Imran Khan was elected last week, elected to become the next prime minister of Pakistan. Who's Imran Khan? You could just say, well, it's another part of this um, 
the election of Imran Khan is just another part of the sweep across the world of celebrities becoming presidents? I don't think so. This is another peculiar animal related to, you said it, an Islamic Republic, the Islamic Republic of Pakistan. Look at what happened to Imran Khan. Started as a guy, cricket player, one of the world's uh, supposedly premier cricket players, was pretty secular, lived in London, married a, I believe, a British uh, Jewish lady. They then get divorced. He then marries a second wife who is a supposedly moderate, secular Pakistani Muslim lady. They then get divorced years later, and now he's married to a woman who nobody sees her face. She wears a complete niqab, face covering, and and uh, anonymous person as Khan increased, as you could see through his post-cricket years, increased his viability of acceptance by the Islamists of the voting community of Pakistan. Is he an ideologue? Odds are he's just a corrupt Islamic nationalist, which is, I think, the best term to describe them, which is some of these guys, in order to win elections in states in which the identity of the state is tied to the Islamic nature of their legal system, of their state. Pakistan is the most pathological byproduct of that identity movement. They become endeared to the Islamic Republic nature, and also thus it's a Sharia law, even though they may claim to be secular. And the military of Pakistan is one of the prime examples of a military that exerts dictatorship over its people and claims to be secular, and for many examples is secular, and yet has within its Sharia system blasphemy laws, apostasy laws, laws of hadood punishments, which are criminal acts of corporal punishment, of beating and torture for stealing, for other things that are part of medieval interpretations of Sharia law. Imran Khan became an Islamist as he his campaign evolved. His campaign evolved from, from praising Prime Minister Modi of India to then claiming back to the Islamist mentality that India was the enemy. Modi was the enemy of Pakistanis. On August 14th, Pakistan will celebrate its 71st birthday. Imran Khan formed a party called the Tahrik e Insaf PTI, and they ultimately won. A coalition of parties won the National Assembly. Khan will, will soon take over as Prime Minister of Pakistan. And while corruption has been endemic, I mean, just to put it in context, remember, we had SEAL Team 6 go into Pakistan to get who was our number one most wanted man on the planet, Osama bin Laden, who was being hidden and protected by likely elements of the ISI in Pakistan. So we did not let them know that we were going in there. At least that was public information and odds are if we're saying that public it's probably true in that we violated the sovereignty of the Pakistani territory in order to get the leader of Al-Qaeda and a movement that had declared war in the United States that 
is in the context of an ally. So we need to revisit the method in which we declare folks to be our allies, that it should not just be because we share common enemies, but that because we have some common values, universal human rights. We're going through the same evolutionary process now with Turkey as we are beginning to put sanctions against a NATO ally. So the cricket player is now running Pakistan. The playboy, as he was called, is now married to a woman who he obviously oppresses. And make no mistake, anyone who tells you that the niqab, the face covering, the anonymity of who his wife is, is not a striking example of misogyny, of oppression, of medieval Sharia interpretations, really doesn't know what they're talking about. Yes, you'll find, and as I was on the U.S. Commission of Religious Freedom, we spoke to women in Saudi Arabia who claim that they have utter independence in choosing to wear the niqab. They didn't choose it. That was mandated by their government. And the choice of covering your face so that you have no recognition of who you are through the independence of your facial autonomy and identity is, I believe, the first step in a downward spiral of oppression against women. And it goes on. Look at what Imran Khan's doing. Why isn't anybody talking about that in the media today? Why is nobody paying attention to what's the transformation happening in Pakistan? Why aren't we talking about what's going to evolve in that? Now, some may say that Jamaat Islamiyah, the Islamist version of the Neo Diobandi, or the Muslim Brotherhood type Islamist of Pakistan, did not endorse Imran. But ultimately, he appeased them and presented ideas that put him in a position to win. We need to analyze this. We need to be talking about it. The pathology that is 70 million voters, 100 million voters in Pakistan is a pathology that we need to address. Because if you're going to reform against political Islam, one of the places on the planet not only Egypt, Syria, and the Arab world. Remember, 80% of the Muslim world is not Arabic. And a significant amount of that population is not only the minority in India, but remember, India is, is, is 1 billion people. So whatever percent is Muslim in India, 30%, that is a significant population than Pakistan. And it's hundreds million. So, we come back, we'll dive into some of the other amazing stories happening around the world in the area of Muslim reform. This is Zudi Jasser. We'll be right back. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network. Bill O'Reilly on the Glenn Beck Program. How you doing, Bill? I'm all right, Beck. Uh, you know, I'm hanging in and watching uh, all the chaos. I have some very, very astute observations, so have Stu uh, get well, his Stu's, paper out. Stu's not here, but Pat is. So Pat! And I got, Pat is here today. Excellent. Is that an upgrade, by the way, over Stu? Oh, that, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Stu is like a limp leg that has been gang- <laughs> has gangrene for a long time. Bill O'Reilly on the Glenn Beck Program.
today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. I want to take you now, as we as we talk about Muslim reform, what I try to do on this program is give you a little window into various communities that you may not be aware of, and political situations, theological uh, um, speech, um, discussions, discourse, some of the front lines of reform. One of those areas that I've talked about frequently is Minnesota, Congressman Ellison's district, and what's been happening there. Congressman Ellison is going to run for attorney general now, has decided not to run for Congressional office, I mentioned to you, I think a couple of weeks ago, some of the work of Laura Loomer, who pointed out that bizarrely, Ellison's running to be the top legal officer in Minnesota and is ineligible to practice law because he allowed his legal license to expire. So, you know, CARE needs to, uh, they might use him for raising money with their 1 800 fetwa. Uh, Attorney General Fetwa number, but, uh, you know, I say that sarcastically, uh, but at the end of the day, a congressman that helped raise money for a Islamist apologetic network called the Council on American Islamic Relations has a lot of explaining to do when he can't even practice law in the state he's running to be Attorney General. Now, if the Minnesotans elect this guy to be their Attorney General, uh, you have to wonder how much thought and vetting they do for any of their elections. I always wondered how a former spokesperson for Louis Farrakhan could ever have become a congressman with re-election after re-election. But I guess you need to look no further than Netflix. <laughs> Last week, Netflix decided it was somehow going to allow Louis Farrakhan's son to publish and to post and to broadcast his documentary about his father his father the holocaust denying anti-semite who cozied up to Gaddafi and the iranian press the thugs of the khomeinis who cozied up to saudi arabia defending them from the floor of the house look up the videos who cozied up to the muslim american society the probably most directly connected network of organizations in america to the muslim brotherhood the chicago tribune reported on them as being the Covert Muslim Brotherhood Network, the secret network of the Brotherhood in a, a story in September 2004. And the MAS, the Muslim American Society, provided funding for Keith Ellison to do his hajj, the most holy thing that we do as Muslims. This politician took money from a nonprofit in order to do it. I don't know where he's getting his theology, but you're actually supposed to pay for that yourself if you do something called our hajj. But that uh, might be minor details in theology. The bigger problem is you took the money from a Muslim Brotherhood outfit in the United States. But actually, what I wanted to speak to you about is... Ellison's endorsement to take his place is a Muslim Democrat in the State House of Minnesota by the name of Ilhan Omar. Ilhan Omar, a Somali American, a hijabi, who is now running for Congress. 
And again, Laura Loomer doing some great work uh, on uh, journalistic uh, research has pointed out the number of campaign violations that she appears already to be garnering. And what's not being discussed now, uh, I'll leave it to all of you to do a little research about how connected Ilhan Omar is to this. But in May, Fox 9 in Minnesota did some significant reporting on daycare fraud. And that daycare fraud questioned whether $100 million, so what was the fraud? The fraud was the establishment of of supposed daycare outfits that would then get state tax subsidies, but the kids would show up at 8 and then at 8.20 leave and go home. And the monies were then being funneled back to Somalia, and there was concerns that they were being used to fund Al-Shabaab and others. And this is not conjecture. This was proven. There were nine different daycare centers shut down. The political establishment in Minnesota, mostly the conservatives, but others raised a ton of red flags about what the heck is going on there. All thanks to Fox 9 reporting. Now, the apologists of Congressman Ellison, of this Ilhan Omar and other, said that this provided, Ellison denounced the report and said, it provided financial stability for the Somali people, both here and in Somalia, and it is one of the strongest protections against the terroristic threat posed by Al-Shabaab. We should be making it easier for our constituents to support their families, not impugning the community for it. Fox 9 should issue a thorough correction and apology for its irresponsible reporting. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? So now, we expose. If you expose an Italian mafia ring in in New York, as so much of the FBI and others did for years, and it proves it has foreign connections, that then denigrates the entire Italian community? Are you kidding me? There's no better way to normalize a community than to help it purge itself of its criminals and its mafia elements. And yet, Omar said she's troubled by the reports of child care fraud, but notes that the fraud investigations wouldn't be possible without communication between DHS and the Somali community. Where's the writing? Where's the exposure of, of the pathologies that this showed of exploiting the country that you came to as immigrants, as refugees? None of it. Silence. No writing. No impugning lead reform. That's why we, I do this program. Because if Muslims don't lead reform and make examples of the criminals, of the corrupt liars and deceptive uh, uh, funnelers of funding abroad in our community, we become complicit and we become agents of the destruction of this country. God forbid. It's dangerous, she said, to draw a link between people sending remittances to their loved ones and the funding of terrorist organizations. I know too well that many Republicans will use this to further Islamophobic rhetoric within our society. Are you kidding me? I I just, I, I cannot believe this. So let's look at the work Laura Loomer did this week about Omar. And by the way, the Minnesota primary is October, is August 14th. It's in a few days. And if the lobotomized voters who have been voting for Ellison over the past 
10 years, or I don't know how many terms he's done, I think 12 years, since 2006. And by the way, look online. I had a debate against Ellison in the House in which he turned to me and blamed me for Islamophobia, said that if his daughter was attacked and her hijab was pulled off, that I would be responsible for that. And then also said he had no idea what political Islam was. So I'll tell you, when it comes to theological debate, there is probably no leading Muslim more ignorant about Islamic theology and political Islamist threats than Ellison. And that's putting it lightly and mildly and kindly. Probably more significant, he's intentionally deceptive and dishonest while he raises funds and has done over 40 fundraisers for CARE and his friends like Linda Sarsour. So, what's some of the work that Loomer did? She said, as she's running for Congress in the 5th Congressional District, that she had accepted $2,500 in speaking fees from two community colleges in Minnesota. And according to their rules and the House rules, she can't do that. You can't accept speaking fees from state-funded institutions while running for office. So she said she'd return them. Oh, mea culpa. She's going to return them. So instead of taking full responsibility, as Loomer points out, for her blatant violation, she pleaded ignorance and said she didn't know that the rules applied to her. She claimed that she booked it before she was elected in November 2016 to the state house. She also failed to, fire her to, to file her required statement of economic interest on time. On June 20, she filed her statement months past the set deadline. And she also had to pay an $1,100 fine for failing to properly file her statement on time. She's a repeat offender of an, a number of, uh, uh, of violations. And she continues to show, as Dreskowski said, a repeated pattern of an unusual amount of campaign finance violations. Her statements against Israel are, are, are pathetically horrifically not only anti-israel but anti-semitic and are deeply concerning she said israel has hypnotized the world may allah awaken the people and help them see the evil doings of israel and by the way there is no greater sign of an islamist than when they speak about god they don't translate god in arabic she continues even when speaking publicly to use the term Allah as if we pray to a different God. Now, some may believe Muslims do, but again, modern interpretations, and I think from the origins, is that Islam believes in the God of Abraham, similar to Jews and Christians. She has a, a significant history of publishing anti-Semitic and anti-American tweets and writings. And there's also evidence that she legally married, illegally married, in order to immigrate to the United States, her brother. She's denied that, called that false accusations, called it Islamophobic, etc., etc. And then in 2009, after supposedly her brother, who goes by the name of Ahmed Hersi, the father um, um, the man she publicly refers to as her husband, 
but the couple never finalized their marriage application was never legally married according to Loomer on paper. Omar claims that in 2009 she legally married Ahmad Noor al-Sayyid Elmi, a British citizen, and Powerline blog, Alpha News, Loomer's reporting at uh, uh, Big League Politics, claim that Elmi is Omar's brother. According to Alpha News, Omar was involved with Ahmad Noor Sayyid Elmi and Ahmad Hirsi, her cultural husband and father of her children. So this is just bizarre. And candidates should be vetted. Their history is vetted. We're now talking in Congress about what happened with wrestling coaches and stories that were uh, not discussed back uh, uh, decades ago. And we have current members of Congress sitting, trying to defend themselves over things that they're being told they ignored. As we're hearing about Jim Jordan, as so many others who are getting investigated. So this is not Islamophobia. She needs to have either the proof or the clear denial or the exposure that she did what is one of the most common federal violations of immigration law, which is marriage not only to a family member, which is just sick, but a marriage on false pretenses in order to get immigration. So this needs to be publicly discussed. Minnesotans, look what's going on in your backyard. Talk not only about their background, vet them on their ideology, vet them on what they stand for about Americanism, vet them on political Islam, theology, theopolitical ideas that could be a danger to this country. It's tough love. It's not anti-Muslim. It is anti-Islamist. An Islamist should not be allowed to fill a seat for Congress, as I've said about Keith Ellison, who blocked me on Twitter. Muslims? Absolutely. We are part of the fabric. But anti-Islamist Muslims should be lifted up, while the Islamists should be marginalized and made radioactive. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform. This will be right back. Breaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze radio network um let's move on talk about iran and i want to also mention a kuwaiti blogger why why does it matter to you what a kuwaiti blogger says well i think you know we had this conversation about islamophobia and what that means you know how much i hate that term uh you know islam is an idea it doesn't have any rights muslims have rights just as every human being has a right to believe or not believe or practice but the term islamophobia is an intentional term invoked to suppress free speech to suppress criticisms of ideas contained within certain interpretations of islam so Understanding Islamophobia, I think, what it means and who pushes it is key. And one of the segments I want to start on this program 
and I'll get to the blogger in a sec. One of the one of the segments I want to start is word of the week. The word of the week this week is Islamophobia. Islamophobia is, and we've seen quotes on the internet from Christopher Hitchens to all the way to the radicals like Sheikh Yusuf Kardawi. But from my perspective, sort of uh, to give you sort of the Islam 101, Islamophobia is a concocted term that came out of the 90s created by leaders of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. The OIC. It's a voting bloc of Muslim-majority countries, 56 of them, that are pretty much tyrannies, many of them theocracies, some of them military dictatorships, most of them run by various interpretations of Sharia law. But they came up with this term, Islamophobia, to use it as a way to tarnish their critics and put them on the defense that they are anti-Islam and thus take a way to collectivize 1.6 billion people, Muslims, out of the planet, and make any criticism of policies, of governments, of groups, of movements, and say that it's Islamophobia. And the example I use is, why call it Islamophobia? Do we call anti-Semitism, which Semites are human beings, or Jews, hate, bigotry towards Jews is anti-Semitism. It's not Judeophobia. Judeophobia is discussed. It is a term that exists, but it's not the term used to talk about anti-Semitism, because bigotry against human beings that is based on racism, on a bigotry against the faith, is about human beings. So the term Islamophobia is a term intentionally invoked by theocrats. The Saudi government, when it wants to suppress free speech, will actually arrest people that are criticizing their government's interpretations of laws and theocratic imposition of certain Wahhabi, Maliki interpretations of their Sharia law and say that they're being put in prison for violations of Islam, for seeding treason against the state based on their, their as they told Raif Bedoui, as they told his attorney and others that are now being tortured in jail that they were criticizing Islam inappropriately and weakening society's strength of Islam. So at the core of suppressing free speech is tying control of that speech to criticism of Islam. And thus, criticism of the president of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt became criticism of Islam. All of you in the West... All of us in America, when we criticize Muslim leaders, when we want to make the Muslim Brotherhood a terror organization, we are called Islamophobes, that we are somehow afraid of Islam. When in fact there's nothing more powerful pro-Muslim than marginalizing the theocrats. So the term for this week, Islamophobia, is a term used to shut up dissent against theocrats. It's a term used to marginalize the attempt to actually end up invoking blasphemy laws in the West. So there is no phobia. There is no rights for Islam. Ideas, as we say in the Muslim Reform Movement, ideas don't have rights human beings do. So there is no Islamophobia. Stop using the term. It is a concocted term 
term to suppress criticism of ideas of interpretations of Islam. That's what the term is. Understand what it is. Understand what it's used for. It is used to shut up criticism, to empower governments, and especially to put all of you on your heels when you're criticizing groups like the Council on American Islamic Relations, the Islamic Society of North America, Muslim Public Affairs Council, the Muslim American Society, Islamic Circle of North America, Muslim Brotherhood legacy groups constantly talk about Islamophobia. You go to the website islamophobia.org and yours truly is listed supposedly, even though I consider myself actually quite orthodox as an Islamophobe. So I am afraid of Islam. Seriously? That is what the Wahhabi Nazik television that had millions of viewers see a video describing me as a physician who is an enemy of Islam. Not an enemy of the theocrats, of the dictators of Saudi Arabia, but I am described by Nazik TV as an enemy of Islam. And that's where the term Islamophobia comes. It is not about fear of Islam. It is about empowering dictators. Stop using the term Anyone who uses it should raise a red flag to you that they are actually an enemy of this Constitution, an enemy of our Bill of Rights, an enemy of the United States when they feel in our way of government and our worldview that they are Islamists when they want to use the term Islamophobia. Now, I want to also talk to you about this blogger. Her name is Sundos al Qatan. She's been actually a globally known blogger out of Kuwait uh, because she's one of these fashionistas. And she gained notoriety on Instagram because of her endorsements of various types of makeup, hijab styles, etc. And ultimately has become an icon in and of herself. She's a beauty blogger, as she would self-describe herself. And yet, a few weeks ago, she complained about the new Kuwaiti laws that gave migrant workers better rights. And she still refuses to apologize for her remarks. She posted a video to Instagram last week in which she expressed frustration at the newly implemented changes to the Kuwait's kafala system, which means that Filipino migrant workers can keep control of their own passports and have the right to four days off a month. And she said in this video that she then deleted, she said, how can you have a servant at home who gets to keep their passport with them? If they ran away and went back to the country, who will refund me? How will she get her money back? And she said, I don't want a Filipino maid anymore. And despite widespread criticism on social media calling her a racist, this so-called beauty blogger, didn't care about migrant labor abuse in the Gulf state of Kuwait. And her many beauty brands, including Max Factor Arabia, then began to sever ties. And I think that was very wise. So, ladies and gentlemen, the reason this is an important story, she responded and said that the response to her comments were Islamophobic. That these are Islamophobes trying to destroy the success of a beauty blogger who happens to be one of the most famous bloggers that wears a hijab. So she called the backlash a foreign media campaign, 
designed to attack Islam, the hijab, Kuwait, and the wider Gulf region. She said, of course I don't offer an apology because I was telling you the truth. Keeping a domestic worker's passport is deemed an enslavement and racism by these people. Why judge me, my worker's passport, with the aim of ensuring my safety? These people express more outrage over my remarks than they have over humanitarian crises and massacres in Syria, Iraq, and Gaza. Are these humanitarian values? She has 2.3 million Instagram followers. And she called on them to boycott those who are criticizing her. So, listen. Do you want, here you are with a Muslim in a Muslim country that was being marginalized by her sponsors because of her direct verbalization of what is common practice by the Kuwaiti government and others. Now, the Kuwaiti government looked like it was trying to repair some of that racism, but the endemic racism of the way the Sri Lankan people are treated in the Gulf states, the way the Filipino people are treated, Indian immigrants, others are third, fourth-class citizens, never can get property rights, never can get citizenship rights, and are often owned and property of the elite royals of these countries. They can never, I've known people that have lived in these Gulf states for 30, 40 years and have no property to their name. They cannot own anything. It's all owned via proxy, let alone the home workers, the maids that their own passports are owned. They are physically owned by their people they work for. And yet criticism of this hijabi, criticism of her was Islamophobia. She didn't, even when she responded to it, she then did the moral equivalency of, of somehow the West doesn't care about Syria, etc. A whole completely other subject. Uh, most of the people speaking out actually had been speaking out vociferously against the genocide in Syria, against ISIS, against Assad, against the Khomeinis, against the Russians, and what they're doing in Syria. So that is complete nonsense. Complete unmitigated hogwash. So when you want to know how much nonsense it is, this speaks to when you hear people say, that's Islamophobia. Think of this blogger, Miss Katan. She said Islamophobia when she was actually the pathological racist. That's what Islamophobia term is used for as a defense to become the offense when you are on your heels as a racist, Muslim, fascist. This is Zudi Jass. We'll be right back. I'll reform this. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc. For many, many years, I have been frustrated by people who let pets lick them. I find it disgusting. They lick their butt. You really want that? And this is the argument. I've had people tell me this, and it infuriates me. Oh, I know you're going. What is the line, Chris? The dog's mouth is cleaner. Winner. What? There's no way that's possible. The morning blaze. Weekday morning, 6 to 9 Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser, the Blaze Radio Network. 
This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to the last segment this week of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. Let's talk in the last segment here about Iran. Iran, Iran, Iran. Iran is not only a little more covered than the other topics I talked to you about today, but um, it is circling the drain. Circling the drain, I think, in a good way. A drain that is not being covered because, lo and behold, as they try to continue to cover and do information operations in the media for the Obama administration, still trying to preserve onto any semblance of a legacy, none of which is left, by the way. The legacy of Obama will be policy-wise as one of the worst presidents this country has ever had. And the dismantling of his legacy continues, and the end of the nuclear deal was one of them. But we will see that under the Obama administration, the 2009 revolution was intentionally suffocated and not aided by the West. While the 2018 revolution, which began on December 28 and became became obvious on January 1st, has continued to pick up more and more inertia. There's no better policy for Syria, I believe than to see Iran deteriorate. They will have to pull back in. We saw marches this week every day, people in the thousands in the streets chanting, death to the dictator, death to Khamenei. Stop funding foreign terrorism. Stop sending our money to Syria. Stop sending our troops to Syria. Bring it back. And what does... Reuters report, for buoyant Assad, Syrian war enters tricky phase. For buoyant Assad, Syrian war enters tricky phase. It sounds like they're, they're talking about a next episode of Fortnite, not a genocidal war in which 10 million out of 21 million have been displaced and 600,000 plus are dead. That's the Reuters for you. That the war is somehow over. The kinetic part may be dwindling down, but the war will never be over as long as the Assad and the Ba'athists are in party, are in power. It won't. The revolution might have started in mass in March 2011, but any of us with families in the Middle East, in Syria, will tell you that the honest ones, the courageous ones have been fighting that regime since it was implanted forcefully in 1963 and since Hafez Assad took over in 1970. It will continue until its death. And there may be stories in the West about Syria recovering, but don't think for a second that as long as Assad and his evil family are running that place that it will ever recover. And don't be misled that somehow he is a secular protector of minorities. He has been arm, hand and glove with the Khomeinists. Hezbollah and Asrullah and Iran's Republican Guard, Revolutionary Guard, has been now taken over Syria and made it into a client state. And that's why if you look at Pompeo's list of 12 items that need to happen for Iran to start to become a normal country and to remove the sanctions, one of them is that it needs to remove its troops out of Syria and its propagation of terrorism in the region.
And until it does that, until it does that, it will not be able to be a normal country. <laughs> Iran this week sued, sued in European court to have to bring an end to the sanctions, to bring an end to the imposition that President Trump said was going to happen because of who they are, what they're doing, and what they stand for. That's a joke. They also reached out to Europe, the EU, to try to help them maintain the semblance of the nuclear deal, and they openly said that that's probably not going to work, but let's look at the options. Probably not going to work, but let's look at the options. The Iranian real, ladies and gentlemen, is in a death spiral. That's a quote from Forbes, a quote from Bloomberg News. It is in a death spiral. The Iranians in the last week alone lost 20% of the value of their real. Over the last year, it's lost 100%, especially in the last six months. So why is the economy falling apart? The revolution is beginning to withdraw money from banks. The revolution is making the buying much less internally. And if you look at the Arab Revolution, the Arab Springs, that's how they broke the back of their dictatorships, was they continued to push economically on the governments. And that's what this revolution is doing. And it is not only much different than 2009, in which they simply pushed against the regime in Tehran. This time they are all over the country, from Qom to uh, towns across Iran, they are beginning to push back against the seat of government and against the towns of Islamic education. Because who's in control in Iran? The Islamic Republic, the Islamic Supreme Council, Khamenei and his goons. So one of the funny things, and I want to end on this this week, is when President Trump reached out and said he's ready to meet with no preconditions with the president of Iran, with Rouhani. Some criticize this, and, you know, on the one hand, a president who would meet with Kim Jong-un, and it looks like there may be some progress made with that meeting. Nobody's saying that we'd believe anything that's said at these, but at least it creates a process by which progress can be measured, and we've seen some success after the meeting so far, so far with the North Koreans. Well, again, their friends in Iran maybe should be approached no differently as we push forward sanctions that are unmistakable we tell them, listen, we'll meet with you. And forget Obama's unclenched fist. We have put down the fact that we are shutting down their interactions with the world through stronger sanctions than we've ever seen. But I would tell President Trump if he asked, meet with Khamenei. Demand to meet with Khamenei, not with Rouhani. Rouhani is a tool. The sense that you can have moderate arms of the regime. No moderates really run. It's just some are better at masking it than others. The Ahmadijads of the world didn't care about masking who they were for the West, while the Rouhanis of the world were actually more dangerous because they were able to then cajole a sucker like President Obama into a deal that was just complete nonsense. 
Maybe he wasn't a sucker. Maybe he knew all the time what he was facilitating. I don't know. But at the end of the day, he empowered the Islamic Republic and the Islamic Supreme Council. So if you want to meet with somebody that can change and turn Iran on a dime, it is not Rouhani. It is Khamenei. What a message it would send in Islamic reform for the President of the United States to sit down and meet with Khamenei and expose their theocracy as being not only un-American, unhuman, but a relic that has its days numbered. I would ask you to look at the letter that President Bush, that President Bush 43, wrote to the president of Iran, in which he talked about the end of the Islamic State and the travesty of human rights that exists there. The difference, though, now is if we're going to meet, meet with Khamenei. I hope President Trump thinks about it. I doubt that the meeting is going to happen. Rouhani's response has already been one of very negative, that he would not uh, be dragged into any type of meeting with uh, um, this type of gun to his head, as he said. I really don't care. I believe their days are numbered. Continue to watch what's happening on the streets of Iran. It can shift Syria. It can shift the region and can reignite. The difference, I think, in Iran is that they have now suffered from almost 40 years of theocracy. They are a country that will not, that has gone through the maturation of understanding that theocracy is not an answer. The theocracy has failed. They have also come from before the 79 revolution, from a time of monarchy. So they may actually, they may actually then evolve into more secular democracy. This is Udi Jasser. Thanks for joining me this week. Stay tuned. I'll bring you next week more news, more Frontline conversations are the things that you will not hear anywhere else here on Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. God bless. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.